Quote, Daughter as dear as dearest child can be, Lady Sophia, ever dear to me. Our guardian angels doubtless did conspire to make you gain, and me to give this hire, not to requite what I can never do, but somewhat suitable from me to you. I am not rich, guineas tempt not your eyes, yet here are angels you will not despise. You came an angel in the case to me, expressly sent to guide and set me free. The great gate opened of its own accord. Footnote on margin, Acts 12:10. End footnote. That word came in my mind. I praise the Lord, He that restrained of old the Shechemites. Footnote Genesis 35:5. End footnote. I hope will now the cruel Benjamites, priests that do want the pity of laymen, judges and counselors that cry, Amen. When I was out, I knew not where I went. I cried to God and he new angels sent. If ye desire what passed since to me, read through the book of Psalms and think on me. End quote. What follows are some of the concluding lines. Quote, There's nothing meant but pride of tyranny, a dainty way to uniformity. The triple crown and this new glorious head may make brave work when you and I are dead. All is but cheat till holiness get place till gospel laws be rules and God give grace. God's secret laws are not still, footnote, still, that is, yet. End footnote. God's secret laws are not still understood. The wrath of men may work the church's good. What we may see is far from me to say, but God doeth what he will in his own way. Peace is not promised here, Yet we may see religion flourish to a great degree and Zion freed from human tyranny. This may be here, but certainly above. There shall be always peace and always love. O happy place where we shall always see the blessed sight, perfect felicity. A place beyond our Esokosan far. Footnote. At Inverary there are several, several avenues of great beauty one of the principal of which is a long avenue which leads from the castle to Esakosan. There are also many trees worthy of notice on account of their great size and beauty. There is a lime near Esokokan called the marriage tree on account of the union of the branches which is often visited by strangers. From a bowl of considerable size it throws out two principal branches a little above the ground, which are firmly knit together at about twenty feet above the point of separation by a bar or branch formed of a process issuing from one or probably from both. This extract from the statistical account of Inverary, Argyllshire, in the new statistical account of Scotland will enable the reader to form an idea of the Earl's allusion in the text. End footnote. A place beyond our Esokosan far, where there is always peace and never war. Let you and I meet at the throne of grace by prayer now till we see face to face. Since, as your page, I could no longer stay, pray God reward you and himself you guide and all good people wish to you provide. The noble friends I found here greet you well. How much they honor you it's hard to tell, or how well I am used to to say it all, might make you think that I were in Whitehall, 
I eat, I drink, I lie, I lodge, say wheel. It were a folly to attempt to tell. So kindly cared for, furnished, attended. Were ye to chalk it down, you could not mend it. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 9, Number 23. End footnote. Though the escape of the Earl greatly relieved the mind of the Countess, the unjust and illegal proceedings of the government against him in his absence proved to her a new cause of distress. The Privy Council, having communicated the intelligence of his escape to the King, and at the same time desired to be informed what measures they should take in consequence, the King, in reply, allows sentence of forfeiture of life and fortune to be pronounced upon him as a traitor, but not to be executed till his pleasure should be further made known. On the receipt of the king's letter, which was on the 22nd of December, the second day after Argyle's escape, the council gave orders to the, to the justiciary court to pronounce upon him in his absence the above sentence. Learning the determination of the council, the countess presented a petition to the lords of justiciary, humbly supplicating that no sentence might be passed upon him in his absence and supporting the prayer by many strong reasons founded both on justice and on the law of Scotland. But the justiciary lords, being now mere tools in the hands of the Privy Council, disregarded her petition, not even deigning to answer it, and pronounced sentence upon him in terms of the act of the Privy Council. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 340. End footnote. During the time that the Earl was in Holland, the Countess, it would appear, remained in Scotland, residing chiefly at Stirling. She, however, continued to correspond with him by letter, and Major Holmes, whom Bishop Spratt describes as Argyle's long dependent and friend, a man active in the times of Cromwell, and always disaffected to His Majesty's government, was employed by Argyle in conveying his letters to her as well as to others of his correspondence and in conveying her letters to him. Footnote. Bishop Spratt's True Account of the Horrid Conspiracy, etc. Page 82. End footnote. At length, about the close of the year 1683, she was put to trouble in consequence of some of the Earl's letters and of a letter which she had written to him falling into the hands of the government. The Rye House plot had been discovered in June that year, and the government, having received intelligence that Argyle, who was still in Holland, had corresponded with the conspirators, Major Holmes, to whom all Argyle's letters were addressed, was taken into custody, and his house being searched, there were found in it several of Argyle's letters written in ciphers, and a letter of the Countess to Argyle, also written in ciphers, together with the key of the correspondence. Footnote, Bishop Spratt's true account of the horrid conspiracy compared with the acts of Privy Council afterward quoted. End footnote. All these documents were immediately sent down to Edinburgh to the Privy Council, who upon receiving them summoned the Countess to appear at their bar. This subject having come under their consideration at their meeting of the 18th of December, 1683, the Council... Quote, remitted to the Lord's Chancellor, Treasurer, and Duke of Hamilton to speak with the Lady Argyll and end the deciphering of her letter to the late Earl of Argyll, her husband, and to report to the Council. These members, having gone aside and spoken with her, reported that she was unwilling to satisfy them in that matter upon oath. The Council then remitted to the Earl of Perth 
the Lord's Register and Advocate to tell her of her danger if she refused to do so. And these lords, having also spoken with her and reported that she was willing to depone, the the council remitted to the Earl of Perth to examine her upon oath and communicate the result of her examination to the Lord's Chancellor and Treasurer in the afternoon. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. She was summoned again to appear before the council at their meeting on the forenoon of the 20th of December, and having made her appearance, she was solemnly sworn concerning the letter above mentioned, and made her depositions thereupon. The earls of Perth and Tweeddale, the president of the court of session, and the Lord Advocate were appointed to examine her more particularly. Her depositions have not been registered in the records of the proceedings of the Privy Council, but the substance of them has been preserved by Fountain Hall, an industrious chronicler of the events of those times. She acknowledged that she had corresponded with Argyle, which in strict law was criminal for her to do, though his wife, he being a condemned traitor. She also owned that the letter above referred to was written by herself to him, but that she could not now decipher it, having about four months ago burnt the key. Judging upon the discovery of the English plot, such a mode of correspondence dangerous and liable to suspicion. She further deponed that ever since his affair with the Maclean's about the Isle of Mull, the Maclean's having laid wait for his letters to know his design, it was the Earl's practice to write to her and his friends, even of his private affairs, in ciphers, but that, as has been said before, she had burnt the key and could not now read or explain the ciphers but that all the letters she received from him contained nothing concerning the plot and related only to his own private affairs and to his friends. Quote, and it would be very cruel law indeed, unquote, she added, quote, were a wife compelled to detect and reveal such matters, end quote. Unsatisfied with her answers, which contrary to their wishes discovered nothing to criminate the Earl, the committee pronounced them disingenuous, and accordingly they sent in all haste for Mr. George Campbell in the Canongate and one Gray of Cresci in Angus, who were skilled in the art of reading letters written in ciphers. Such were the proceedings of the Committee of Council. The Council itself, at the same diet, December the 20th, quote, continued the advising the oath until their next meeting, and the Earl of Balcars was desired that the lady, his mother, might be in readiness at any time she should thereafter be called for. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council compared with Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 251. End footnote. The Countess was again brought before the Committee of the Privy Council on the 1st of January, 1684. By this time, Mr. Gray of Cresci and Mr. George Campbell had succeeded in deciphering her letter to the Earl, with the exception of some capital letters with figures placed above them on the right hand, as D with a 43 above it, which stood for the relatives, he, his, him, the import of which they did not discover until explained by the Countess herself. It does not appear that at this meeting they read her own letter to her or made her fully aware of the extent to which they had succeeded in deciphering it. But ignorant that D43 was put for the relative pronoun and ignorant of the use made of another hieroglyphic, H75, 
They supposed and hinted to her that by these signs which occurred in her letter, her son, the Earl of Balcars, was intended. Finding that her son was thus in danger of being implicated, she said that she now remembered that D-43 was only a relative particle in the key between her husband and her, and so meant Lord Maitland. Footnote. Richard, Lord Maitland, eldest son of Charles, 3rd Earl of Lauderdale, formerly Lord Hatton, brother to the famous Duke of Lauderdale, was married to Lady Anne Campbell, second daughter of the Earl of Argyll. End footnote. Who was immediately mentioned before. As this involved that nobleman in the charge of corresponding with and receiving letters from Argyll, a traitor, the committee immediately sent for the Earl of Lauderdale, Lord Maitland's father, and sent with him Captain Graham and Sir William Patterson, their clerk, to seal up all the papers, trunks, and cabinets of Lord Maitland, who was then in London, till they should be examined. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 256, compared with the Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. At the meeting of the Privy Council on the following day, January 2nd, the committee gave a verbal report of what they had done. They state... Quote, upon information given to them that a gentleman in Mearns named Gray of Cresci, by rules of art, is able to unfold ciphering. By their order, the letter in ciphers found at Major Holmes' house in London and the key sent down with some other papers, which, le- which letter is by the Countess of Argyle acknowledged to be a letter from her to her husband, were delivered to him who, having considered thereof, deciphered the letter, except some letters placed, as it seems, for monosyllables or names of persons, whereby the import of the whole letter is fully discovered. End quote. They further state that in consequence of the explanation which the Countess had given of certain letters with figures placed above them being put for monosyllables or relative particles, whereby Lord Maitland seemed implicated in the crime of corresponding with Argyle, a condemned traitor, Quote, they have yesternight given order to Sir William Patterson, clerk to the council, and Captain Patrick Graham, to go to the Earl of Lauderdale's house and to secure all the papers belonging to Lord Maitland, and to examine all the servants upon oath as to the Lord Maitland's cabinets, boxes, and coffers where any of his rights were, and that none of them were abstracted, and to seal and secure the same and the doors and windows that none might enter the room where they were. End quote. They further informed the council, quote, that Sir William Patterson and Captain Graham had, conformed to the said order, gone to the Earl of Lauderdale's house, and called for the keys of the rooms where any of the Lord Maitland's papers were, or suspected to be, and examined the hale servants of the house as to their knowledge of any other papers belonging to him, or if the same were abstracted and that thereafter they had sealed the boxes and coffers wherein they were informed to be, and the doors and windows of the chamber where they had left them, and produced the keys thereof before the committee, as also that by their order they had gone to the Countess of Argyle and given her an account of the deciphering of the said letter, and what they had observed therein, that she might not be surprised, but might recollect herself for clearing her oath. End quote. In fine... They state that they had, quote, found it necessary to write a letter to the secretaries with the said deciphered letter for His Majesty's information, and the said deciphered letter with the committee's order to Sir William Patterson and Captain Graham and the account of the obedience given by them thereto being read, 
and considered by the lords of council, they approved thereof as necessary and good service done to his majesty. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. Such was the stir created by a letter which the countess wrote to her husband. No criminating disclosures of any moment, it would appear, were made against Lord Maitland, if we may judge by the silence preserved on the subject in the records of the subsequent proceedings of the Privy Council. The Countess also, as it would seem, was no further annoyed in this matter, it being manifest that whatever might be discovered of Argyll's intrigues with those concerned in the Rye House plot, it was to be discovered from his correspondence with others and not with her. And accordingly, the government especially addressed itself, and ultimately with success, to the task of unraveling the letters of Argyll to other parties found in the possession of Major Holmes. In the summer of 1685, being informed of the sickness of her daughter, Lady Henrietta, then the wife of Sir Duncan Campbell of Auchenbreck, who was residing at the castle of Carnesary in the parish of Kilmartin, Argyllshire, the Countess went to visit her and upon her recovery brought her along with her other daughter, Lady Sophia, who had been residing some weeks with her sister at the castle of Carnesary to Stirling to live with her there for some time. Footnote, Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell End footnote Lady Henrietta had a strong affection for her mother and bears a high testimony to her Christian worth. Quote, her tender care and affection, unquote, says she, quote, have been greatly evidenced to all hers and particularly to myself, which I desire to have a deeper sense of than can be expressed as my bounden duty. And I cannot but reckon it among the greatest earthly blessings to have been so trysted, having early lost my dear father, eminent in his day, when insensible of the stroke, and whose memory has much of a lasting savoriness among those of worth that knew him, and when so young, not two years old, and deprived of his fatherly instruction, it may justly be ground of acknowledgment that the blessed father of the fatherless, on whose care I was left, did preserve so tender-hearted a mother, whose worth and exemplariness in many respects may be witness against us, if undutiful or unthankful, to the great giver of our mercies. End quote. Footnote. Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. End footnote. Hitherto the Countess had suffered by the forfeiture of the estates of the Earl and by his long banishment. Now she was to suffer by being personally imprisoned and still more severely by the tragical fate of her husband. The Earl, who for some years had been living on the continent and who had on the death of Charles II resolved upon his unfortunate expedition of rescuing his country from popery and slavery, set sail for Scotland on the 1st of May, 1685, with three ships and a considerable number of arms, but with few men, not exceeding three hundred in all. In three days he reached Orkney and touched there, a great error, for thus his motions were made known to the Bishop of Orkney, who immediately communicated the intelligence to the Privy Council. Two of Argyle's friends, Mr. William Spence and his, his secretary, and Dr. William Blackadder, son of Mr. John Blackadder, having gone ashore at Kirkwall, were also seized by order of the bishop, who refused to surrender them, upon which Argyle seized and carried off five or six of the Orkney people as prisoners. From Orkney he steered his course by the inside of the Western Isles for Islay, 
Thence he sailed to Mole, thence to Kintyre, and on arriving at Tarbet, published his declaration to his clan. But being joined by fewer in the highlands than he had anticipated, and meeting with various disasters, he at last found it necessary in order to secure his personal safety to disguise himself under the dress of a countryman. Riding in disguise on horseback, he was attacked on the 17th of June by two of the militia who were also on horseback at the water of Inchinan. They laid hold on him, one on each side, all the three being on horseback, and the earl grappling with them both. One of them fell with him to the ground. His lordship got up and kept both at bay by presenting his pocket pistols, and he would have made his escape had not some come to the aid of the two militia. A weaver there, being awakened by the noise, came out with a rusty broadsword and struck Argyle on the head, which so stunned him that he fell into the water and in the fall cried out, Ah, unfortunate Argyle! On knowing who he was, they seemed not a little grieved and would have let him go had not the terror of being punished by the government prevented them. He was brought in prisoner to Glasgow and thence to Edinburgh on the 20th of June, 1685, under a strong guard. He lingered so long by the way that it was near ten o'clock at night before he arrived at the water gate. On his arrival there he was met by Captain Graham's guards, who were appointed to conduct him to the castle, and his hands being tied behind his back by the hangman, he walked on foot bareheaded to the castle, the hangman going before him. But from the lateness of the evening, few were spectators of his ignominious treatment. Though the Countess of Argyle had no share whatever in this insurrection, yet the Privy Council, on receiving intelligence that the Earl had touched at Orkney, immediately issued orders that she should be apprehended and imprisoned in the castle of Stirling, that town being at that time the place of her residence. After being confined there a short time, she was conducted on a Sabbath morning, May the 10th, to Edinburgh, and on Monday secured a prisoner in the castle, where she was confined for five or six weeks. Footnote. Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell, Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 362, and His Historical Observes, page 189. End footnote. This step was altogether unexpected on her part nor is it easy to see what important object the government could gain by making her a prisoner. She was in no danger of taking up arms and joining the standard of the Earl like his son James and his brother Lord Neil, who with many of the most substantial of the name of Campbell, that they might be prevented from joining him, were seized and made close prisoners. But arbitrary and despotic governments have often wreaked their vengeance on the innocent and helpless relatives of such as have risen up against their tyranny and oppression. And in the present instance they had at least the plea that the Countess, by corresponding with the Earl after he had been denounced a traitor, had rendered himself obnoxious to punishment. They besides seemed to have intended this as a retaliation upon the Earl for his taking five or six of the Orkney people prisoners. Quote, his lady, unquote, says Fountain Hall, quote, and my lord, lord and my lord Neil, his brother, and his son James were secured prisoners in Edinburgh, and they were threatened that as he used the Orkney prisoners, so should they be used. End quote. Footnote Fountain Hall's Historical Observes, page one sixty seven. End footnote. 
The Countess's daughter, Lady Sophia, was at the same time imprisoned in the toll booth of Edinburgh for an old offence for her concern in Argyle's escape from the castle in 1681, for which, though threatened at the time, she had never before been punished. Lady Sophia continued prisoner during the same period as her mother. Footnote. Meanwhile, her husband, the Honorable Charles Campbell, narrowly escaped an ignominious death. He had accompanied his father from Holland on his expedition to Scotland, and being twice sent ashore on the coast of Argyllshire, at one time to bring intelligence of the disposition of the gentlemen and common people, and the second time to levy men, he fell sick of a fever when sent ashore this second time, and was taken by the Marquis of Athol, who, by virtue of his justiciary power, resolved to hang him at his father's gate at Inverary. But, says Fountain Hall, the Privy Council, by the intercession of sundry ladies, for it was said he was married to Lady Sophia Lindsay, Balcar's sister, who conveyed his father in December 1681 out of Edinburgh Castle, stopped it, July 16, 1685, and sent for him to be brought prisoner to Edinburgh. On the 21st of August, he was forfeited and banished for life. In 1689, his forfeiture was rescinded. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 367. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 105. End footnote. It was fortunate for Lady Sophia, unprincipled and tyrannical as were the men who then ruled in Scotland, that none of them equaled in that none of them equaled in brutal or rather diabolical cruelty Jeffreys, the Chief Justice of England, a man after James VII's own heart, who presided at the Western Assizes after the suppression of Monmouth's insurrection, else she would assuredly have been condemned without mercy to atone for her heroic deed by being burnt alive. Or, if any favor had been granted her, it would have been only the poor favor of being first strangled and then thrown into the fire and consumed to ashes. Such was the fate to which, by the sentence of that infamous man, one Mrs. Gaunt was subjected at Tyburn for assisting one of Monmouth's insurgents in making his escape and for giving him money, which was just a case similar to that of the share which Lady Sophia Lindsay had in the escape of Argyle from the castle of Edinburgh. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Historical Observes, page 222. End footnote. On learning after she had been imprisoned ten days in the castle of Edinburgh that the Earl had been apprehended and was also a prisoner in the castle, the Countess was in great affliction. Her fears respecting his fate caused her more distress than her own personal sufferings for she was fully persuaded, and upon two good grounds, that he would now fall a victim to the rage of his enemies. In these circumstances she was extremely anxious to be admitted to an interview with him, but so cruel was the privy council that this was not granted till a week after his imprisonment in the castle, and three days before his execution. The cruelty of this she deeply felt, but she sought and found support and comfort in God. Her daughter... Lady Henrietta, who, on being informed, though incorrectly, that her own husband, Sir Duncan Campbell of Auchenbrack, was apprehended, had gone to Edinburgh to learn his fate, says, concerning her mother, after learning for certain that he had escaped, quote, I was then more unable to make inquiry after my dear afflicted mother, who was harshly treated, and seeing her under so great affliction by the approaching suffering of such an endeared husband, 
and that she had no access to him till eight days after his fatal stroke. This did again renew a very mournful prospect of matters which at this time had a very strange aspect, so that if the Lord of Life had not supported, we had sunk under the trouble. End quote. Footnote. Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. End footnote. The Countess was admitted to see the Earl for the first time on the evening of Saturday the 27th of June. He was now bound in irons, a precaution taken from the moment he was imprisoned in the castle to prevent his making a second escape. And just before she entered, he had received information that a letter had arrived that evening from the King to the Privy Council, ordering them to bring him to condign punishment within three days after the letter came to their hands. But amid all that was distressing in the interview, it was comforting to her to find that his mind was in a state of calm submission to the divine will and of humble trust in God for supporting grace under his sufferings. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 298. End footnote. Instead of being brought to a new trial, he was, on the 29th of June, condemned by the Lord's Justiciary to be publicly beheaded at the Cross of Edinburgh on the following day, in pursuance of the sentence formerly pronounced upon him in his absence for high treason. Footnote. German's Memoirs of Sir Ewan Campbell of Loch Isle, page 216. End footnote. On the forenoon of the day on which he was executed, the Countess was again admitted to see him before he died. And who but such as have been placed in similar circumstances can conceive the agonizing feelings which agitated their bosoms at this their last interview? Scenes like this are so deeply affecting that even jailers who have been accustomed to scenes of suffering have been unable to witness them without being moved to tears. There was, however, in the present case, every alleviating circumstance which Christian character and Christian consolation could, abo- could afford. Though he was soon to die, and the penalty could not be avoided, he had done nothing of which she had reason to be ashamed, or for which he deserved death at the hands of men. Though, when admitted by the jailer into his cell, she found him loaded with chains, she found him not abject and crushed in spirit by remorse, but enjoying the tranquility of conscious innocence and that peace of God which the world can neither give nor take away, and this greatly sustained and soothed her mind. The day being appointed for his suffering, says her daughter Lady Henrietta, she had access to him, and though under deep distress, was encouraged by seeing the bounty and graciousness of the Lord to him in enabling him with great courage and patience to undergo what he was to meet with, the Lord helping him to much fervency in supplication and nearness in pouring out his heart with enlargedness of affection, contrition, and resignation, which did strangely fortify and embolden him to maintain his integrity before his merciless enemies, and by this he was helped at times to great cheerfulness and fortified under his trial and the testimony he was to give of his zeal and favor that to that righteous cause he was honored to suffer for. Footnote, Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. End footnote. On the morning of the day on which he was executed, quote, he spoke freely of the joy with which the Lord had blessed him during the time he had been in Holland, that, as he observed, being the sweetest time of his life, and of the mercifulness of his escape to that end, but rejoiced more in that complete escape he was to have that day from sin and sorrow, 
and yet in a little while he fell into some damp. End quote. Footnote. Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. End footnote. And found the last interview, and especially the final parting with his countess, a severe trial to his fortitude, nor was it a less severe trial to hers. They indeed felt it had to be the greatest trial they had to undergo. Quote, In parting with my mother, unquote, says Lady Henrietta, quote, he was observed to have more concern than in any circumstance formerly, and it was to her a bitter parting to be taken from him whom she loved so dearly. End quote. Footnote. Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. The final parting between that illustrious patriot, Lord William Russell, who was condemned to be executed for the Rye House plot, and his lady, who had an uncommon affection for him, was, in like manner, felt by them to be the most trying scene through which they had to pass. A few days before his execution, when Lady Russell left his apartment, he observed that the parting with her was the greatest thing he had to do, for he feared she would hardly be able to bear it but both of them were enabled on that occasion wonderfully to control their emotions and to display great magnanimity of spirit. With a deep and noble silence, with a long and fixed look in which respect and affection unmingled with passion were expressed, they took their last farewell of each other. He great in this last act of life, she greater. His eyes followed her while she quitted the room, and when he lost sight of her, turning to Dr. Burnett, who attended him as his chaplain, he said, The bitterness of death is now past. Sir John Dalrymple's Memoirs of Great Britain and Ireland, Volume 1, pages 31 and 32. End footnote. After their final adieu, and when she was removed from his cell, quote, He recovered a little, and as the time of his death drew near, which was some hours after, the Lord was pleased wonderfully to shine on him, to the dispelling of clouds and fears, and to the admitting him to a more clear and evident persuasion of his blessed favor, and the certainty of his being so soon happy. End quote. Footnote. Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. End footnote. The last memorial of the Earl's affectionate remembrance of her, which the Countess received, was the following letter, which he wrote to her from the Lay Council House, whither he was brought a short time before his execution. It is brief, for then his time was short and precious, and is as follows. Quote, Dear heart, as God is of himself unchangeable, so he hath been always good and gracious to me, and no place alters it. Only I acknowledge I am sometimes less capable of a due sense of it. But now, above all my life, I thank God, I am sensible of his presence with me, with great assurance of his favor through Jesus Christ, and I doubt not it will continue till I be in glory. Forgive me all my faults, and now comfort thyself in him, in whom only true comfort is to be found. The Lord be with thee, bless thee, and comfort thee, my dearest. Adieu, my dear, thy faithful and loving husband, Argyle. End quote. Footnote, Wadrose History, Volume 4, page 303. End footnote. This letter had a very consoling effect upon the mind of the Countess. It had been her earnest prayer that God would impart to the Earl supporting grace to the last and prepare him for a happy eternity. Her prayers were heard, and great as was her mental anguish, her heart was filled with gratitude to God who had enabled him to display the faith and heroism of the martyr. 
The certainty of his being so soon happy, says her daughter Lady Henrietta, of which he expressed his sense in his last letter to my dear mother, could not but sweeten her lot in her greatest sorrow, and was ground of greatest thankfulness that the Lord helped him to the last to carry with such magnanimity, resolution, contentment of mind, and true valor under this dark-like providence to endless blessedness. And though the loss of so great a Protestant was grief of mind to all that had any tender heart and to friends was a universal inexpressible breaking-like dispensation, yet in so far as he was enabled under cruel suffering to such tranquility, peace, and comfort, this was to them ground of praise and an answer to their prayers. Footnote Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell End footnote the Countess's two daughters by her first husband, Lady Sophia and Lady Henrietta, also received each of them a letter from the Earl. Both these letters are without date, but they were probably written in the lay council house at the same time when he wrote his last letter to his Countess. From his, letters to Hen- from his letter to Henrietta, the reader is referred to our sketch of the life of that lady. The letter which Lady Sophia received from him bears testimony like that which he wrote to her mother to the heavenly joy which filled his soul in the near prospect of death. It is as follows. Quote, My dear Lady Sophia, what shall I say in this great day of the Lord wherein in the midst of a cloud I find a fair sunshine? I can wish no more for you but that the Lord may comfort you and shine upon you as he doth upon me and give you that same sense of his love in staying in the world as I have in going out of it. Adieu, Argyle. P.S. My blessing to dear Earl Balcars. The Lord touch his heart and incline him to his fear. According to his sentence, Argyle was beheaded on the afternoon of the 30th of June. His behavior on the scaffold is particularly narrated by Wadrow. It has been said that he was somewhat appalled at the sight of the maiden, and that he therefore caused bind the napkin upon his face ere he approached it, and was then led to it. Footnote. Fountainhall's Historical Observes, page 194. End footnote. It is, however, admitted by all that he met death with much Christian fortitude. Among other things he said on the scaffold, Quote, I die not only a Protestant, but with a heart hatred of popery, prelacy, and all superstition whatever. End quote. His last words, which he repeated three times as he lay with his head on the maiden, were, Lord Jesus, receive me into thy glory. It is a remarkable fact that as is recorded by Fountainhall, after his head had been struck off, his body, by the great commotion and agitation of the animal and vital spirits, started upright to his feet till it was held down and the blood from the jugular veins of the neck sprung most briskly like a cascade or jet of water. Footnote Fountain Hall's Historical Observes, page 194. End footnote. Quote, Thus fell, unquote, adds the same writer, quote, that tall and mighty cedar in our Lebanon, the last of an ancient and honorable family. End quote. Footnote. The following scene which occurred at the execution of Argyle, as described by Fountain Hall, may be quoted as illustrating the manners of that period. Quote, it was reported, says he, when Argyle's corpse were carried off the scaffold, 
A woman of the popish religion followed the bearers with railing and wished she could wash her hands in his heart blood. Some other women hearing this, it did so far provoke their collar that they seized on her and dragged her to a close foot near the north lock side and there beat her soundly and tore her clothes and robbed her of her crucifix and beads. End quote. Historical Observes, page 197. End footnote. In the month of August, after the execution of the Earl, the Countess, accompanied by her daughter, Lady Henrietta, to London, with the design of assisting her in her intercessions with the government in behalf of her husband, Sir Duncan Campbell of Auchenbrack, who had been involved in Argyle's insurrection and had taken refuge in Holland. She remained in London with her daughter in prosecution of this object for about seven or eight months, after which, all their efforts proving unsuccessful, she returned to Scotland while her daughter in March or April 1686 embarked for Holland to join her husband. On her return to Scotland, she resided during the summer of that year at Stirling. Footnote, Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell. End footnote. Of the subsequent history of the Countess, little is known. We meet with an allusion to her in a letter addressed by Sir James Stewart, Lord Advocate of Scotland, to Mr. William Carstairs, dated Edinburgh, September 14, 1697. The passage relates to her anxiety about her son Colin, 3rd Earl of Balcars, who had become obnoxious to the government of King William in consequence of his concern in the plot of Sir James Montgomery of Skelmorley to restore King James. Footnote. This plot was discovered in 1690, upon which the Earl of Balcars left the country. He waited on the abdicated monarch at St. Germain's, who received him with great affection. He published in 1714 a small work entitled An Account of the Affairs of Scotland Relating to the Revolution, 1688. On the breaking out of the rebellion in 1715, he joined the pretender's standard, but through the clemency of the government he escaped unpunished. He died in 1722, aged about 70. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 169 to 171. End footnote. Quote, I also acquainted you, unquote, says the Lord Advocate, quote, how I was ordered to prosecute the process of treason remitted by the Parliament 1695 to the Justice Court, which was not my inclination at this time. But now that I move in it, it much alarms the Lady Skelmorley for her husband's memory. The Countess of Argyle is also much troubled for her son Balcars. She says it will waken his creditors and mar her daughter's marriages. I told her that her son, if he pleased, might now apply to the king at the Hague. End quote. Footnote. Carstairs, State Papers, page 343. End footnote. Colin walked on foot to the Hague and solicited the friendly offices of Carstairs, who told, who told King William that a man he had once favored was now in so low a condition that he had footed it from Utrecht that morning to desire him to speak for him. If that be the case, said the generous William, let him go home. He has suffered enough. The Earl accordingly returned to Scotland, says Lord Lindsay, toward the end of 1700 after ten years' exile, and his mother had thus the happiness of once more embracing him before her death. Footnote. Lives of the Lindsays, Volume 2, page 190. End footnote. 
On his being permitted to return from exile, says the same writer, she was still living at Stirling. She even survived in 1706, but of the precise period of her death I am ignorant. Few lots in life have been so checkered as hers, and few doubtless ever laid down their head on the pillow of death with more heartfelt satisfaction. During a long and active life she had but few gleams of unalloyed earthly happiness, and it was well for her that her hopes were anchored on another and a better world, where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. Footnote, Lives of the Lindsays, Volume 2, pages 119 to 155. End footnote. Henrietta Lindsay, Lady Campbell of Auchenbrack. Footnote. The materials of this sketch, unless when otherwise indicated by the references at the foot of the page, are taken from Lady Campbell's diary, a copy of which is among the Wadrow manuscripts in the Advocates Library, volume 31, number 8. This copy was written out by Wadrow himself from the original which he received from Mr. John Anderson, Minister of Kirkmaiden, who received it from Lady Campbell herself. Mr. Anderson, in a letter to Wadrow, dated Kirkmaiden, October 24, 1721, says, quote, I have Lady Henrietta Campbell's diary written in her own hand and carried down to her arrival at Edinburgh, anno 1689. She was pleased to compliment me with it the last time I parted with her, having a double of it for herself. The whole of it concerns her own exercises, from her early conversion and experience of the work of grace to that time. I have seldom read anything more edifying, and therefore could wish to see what further account she has left of her last sickness, and could have hopes of getting the same from her son, Sir James, if I were at his house. End quote. Letters to Wadrow, Volume 15, Number 78. And in a letter to Wadrow in January 1722, he says in a postscript, quote, Since I wrote the above, I received yours, dated January 1st, and shall sometime send you Lady Henrietta's diary, or at least bring it with me, about the end of April or the beginning of May. I design to take about two weeks about Glasgow before I go to the assembly. End quote. End footnote. Henrietta Lindsay was the third and youngest daughter of Alexander, first Earl of Balcars, by his wife, Lady Anne Mackenzie, the subject of her of the preceding sketch. She was born about the close of the year 1657, or early in the year 1658, as appears from a statement made in her diary that at the time of her father's death, which took place in August 1659, she was not two years old. At so early an age, she could not remember her father, much less derive profit from his instructions and example. But in her eminently pious mother, she found an affectionate and well-qualified instructress in the things of God, as well as a constant pattern of the most attractive features of the Christian character. Nor was this great privilege lost upon her. From the exemplary piety of some female servants in the family, she also de derived much religious advantage in her tender years. She mentions that this was the means of first stirring her up to aim in some serious manner at the duty of prayer, which at times was made sweet to her. And from the experience of her younger days, she makes the following very judicious and important ob observation. Quote, 
It cannot but be recommended that care ought to be taken to have well-inclined and conscientious servants of an agreeable temper about the young ones. End quote. When only a little past thirteen years of age, she made a public profession of Christ at the Lord's table at Weems. In our day, a child of this age is seldom admitted to so solemn an ordinance. But such early admissions were by no means rare in the best days of the Church of Scotland. Henrietta was, however, far from being satisfied with the manner in which she made this her first approach to the table of the Lord. She acknowledges that there yet remained in her great ignorance and estrangedness from the life and power of Christianity saved by faint wishes which prompted her to some formal going about duties, and to this duty among others, that as she afterward discovered she had presumed upon it, from great rashness and no doubt ignorance of the hazard of such an adventure, and that therefore no sensible benefit could be discovered which after some months was made cause of dread and terror to her. These convictions of her having profaned the sacrament of the Lord's Supper were first produced on her mind at Inverary under the ministry of Mr. Patrick Campbell, when in consequence of the marriage of her mother to the Earl of Argyle, she was brought to reside at the castle of Inverary, the seat of that nobleman. The sermons she there heard Mr. Campbell preach had an awakening effect upon her, which, says she, writing after his death, which took place subsequently to the Revolution, will ever endear his memory to me. She also records that at this time a weekly catechetical exercise in the family of the Earl of Argyle, conducted by Mr. Cumming, a man of eminent piety and learning, was made greatly useful to her, issuing in her greater liking to spiritual concerns. Brought by these means to a conviction of the danger of her natural state, she was led to renounce her own righteousness as insufficient to form the ground of her justification before God, and to seek salvation only in the finished work of the Blessed Mediator. It indeed appears to have been her own impression that it was only now that she became the subject of the regenerating and saving grace of the Spirit of God. Going with the Earl of Argyle's family to Kintyre, where they stayed a month or five weeks, she had access to her sweet and powerful truths at Campbelltown under Mr. Cameron's and Mr. Keith's ministry, who were two eminent lights there. Footnote. Mr. John Cameron was, at the Restoration, Minister of Kilfinan, from which he was ejected for nonconformity, and in 1672 he was appointed in the indulgence of the Privy Council of September that year, indulged minister of that parish. From the statement in the text it would appear that he had been subsequently appointed indulged minister at Campbelltown. Mr. Edward Keith was, at the Restoration, Minister of Lockheed, from which he was also ejected for nonconformity. He was appointed in 1672, indulged minister of Campbelltown, Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 328, and Volume 2, page 204. End footnote. During this time, her young heart was drawn forth in ardent love to her Savior, and she was much engaged in the secret exercises of religion in which she found great delight. After this, she was brought with Argyle's family to Edinburgh. While residing in the capital, she had an opportunity of hearing the ejected ministers preach in private houses, and the powerful impression which, her, which their sermons made upon her own heart, as well as the blessed effects they produced upon many others who heard them, 
created in her mind an esteem for these excellent men, which she found it impossible to feel for the curates whose ministry was attended with little evidence of the presence and power of God. Such was the contemplative character of her mind that even then, though only in the fifteenth or sixteenth year of her age, she had reasoned herself into the impropriety, if not the sinfulness, of hearing the curates, not only because of the cold and unimpressive character of their discourses, but also because she believed that by the solemn league and covenant Britain was solemnly engaged against prelacy. She thus writes, After this we were brought to Edinburgh, where after several months of ups and downs as to comfort, there was access unexpectedly to gospel ordinances in private families that proved not empty, that proved not empty cisterns to me, but were made as the conduit to derive streams from the fountain, for which, oh, to be helped to praise. And though a time of persecution, yet the Lord favored his people there with several powerful sermons in these private meetings which did engage to great esteem and affection to these his sent servants who were peculiarly countenanced beyond what I could perceive among others of a different persuasion. This was a privilege Mr. Cumming was instrumental in procuring. Learning then to lay to heart the misery of our nation was the misery our nation was groaning under by being reduced to formal lifeless teachers that were then in our churches, and by the silencing our more faithful ministers that were removed to corners, it became from this time matter of bitterness to me to hear any other man than them. Having the deep impression of the ties our nation was under to have abolished this woeful, episcopal, tyrannical power that had so sad effects. Personal dedication to God in a written form in which the person gives himself or herself up to be the Lord's alone and forever, is an exercise which has often been engaged in by the pious young in the youthful ardor of their religious feelings, and though if performed in a self-righteous spirit it may be the means of fostering dangerous delusion, yet if performed evangelically in the way of the person's renouncing all dependence on his own righteousness and strength, trusting to Christ's righteousness alone for salvation, and to God's grace for strength to perform the engagements come under, it may and has often been highly profitable to him both at the time and afterward, encouraging him to cleave to God in his service in difficulties in peril and even in death. So much was the heart of this young lady drawn out to God under the sermons of the ejected ministers that she resolved by a solemn transaction of this nature to make an entire surrender of herself to him and upon her going to the country where her greater seclusion afforded her more convenience for such an exercise, she engaged in it with peculiar solemnity. But, says she, in these corners there was such sweetness found in the preached word out of the mouths of his sent servants as Mr. Gilbert Hall, that shining light, and Mr. George Johnston, as did lead me to a further solicitude how to close with these great gospel offers the publication of a Savior to undone sinners being then made sweet, so that I proposed, if the Lord should give opportunity, that I should essay that indispensable duty of covenanting, which accordingly I did, in the sixteenth year of my age, when brought to the country at Balcars, where I enjoyed more of solitude in a retired lot. Footnote, that is, at Balcars' house, the seat of her brother, the Earl of Balcars, in the parish of Kilcar. 
Conquahar, Fifeshire. End footnote. The covenant which she had written about, written out and subscribed with her own hand has not been preserved, but her whole account of the transaction breathes a spirit strictly evangelical as well as devout. She declares that she was much countenanced in that work, in the Lord's enabling her to improve the glad tidings of salvation without which she felt herself to be a lost sinner. She also testifies that this solemn dedication was the means of her attaining great settledness and serenity of mind, and that then she was taken up more than usually in the exercises of delight and praise to the renowned name of him who is the blessed rose of Sharon and lily of the valleys, which made those retirements from a vain world sweet to her for some weeks after. She adds, The singing of Psalm 45 was frequently made sweet to me in those retired walks in Balcar's planting. After this she resided for a time at Stirling, and she adverts to several private meetings for sermon at which she was present, some of them in the night because of the persecution, by which she was strengthened and edified. Her early scruples about hearing the curates continued to increase. She very soon altogether withdrew from attending their ministry, and though frowned upon for this by some in high places, she had the moral courage to act in conformity with her deliberate convictions of duty, in spite of censures and sneers, and enjoyed the inward satisfaction which always accompanies fidelity to conscience. Being again, says she, some time after this brought to Edinburgh, he was found greatly afflicting to attend on these time-serving formal sermons which then were authorized by authority and became matter of bitterness and was such a grievance as did necessarily oblige me to withdraw from frequenting them both at Stirling and at Edinburgh and though ill looked upon by some then in power for being scrupulous about this yet there was more peace in this from considerations that were considerable to a mind that was solicitous and in clearness Lady Henrietta had been early admitted to the Lord's Supper, and though she afterward believed she was then an unworthy partaker, yet this neither cast her into despair nor led her to neglect the observance of this ordinance in future, but rather served to excite her to diligence in seeking after the qualifications of a worthy communicant. Numerous evidences occur in her diary of the high veneration with which she contemplated that sacred institution and of the spiritual comfort and profit she had derived from its observance. In that document, a particular account is given of not less than twenty of these solemn occasions at which she was a communicant. Footnote. These are one at Weems, one at Pittenweem, one at Tillicoultry, one at Paisley, one at Cambusnethan, one at Kilallan, one at Durleton, three at Campbelltown, one at London, one at Delft, and eight at Rotterdam. End footnote. About this time she went to Cambusnethan, where Mr. William Violant, whom she describes as that shining light, was indulged minister to observe the Lord's Supper, though the distance was great from Balcars, to which she had removed some time before, and she stayed in the house of Sir Thomas Stewart of Coltness, where she met with much kindness from both friends and strangers. From Cambusnethan she returned to Edinburgh, where for a season, through the violence of the persecution, she had no opportunity of hearing the gospel preached. She felt her silent Sabbaths very bitter, though the secret exercises of religion were very comforting to her, 
and she again set apart some time for renewing her former transaction of self-dedication to be the Lord's, which Bethel Day was made among the sweetest she had ever had on earth. At length in private houses she frequently enjoyed sweet gospel days, notwithstanding the severities enjoined. And at these meetings, which were wonderfully hedged and protected from that avenging persecution, Mr. Alexander Moncrief and Mr. John Carstairs, those great and shining lights, were helped marvelously to deliver great truths and enabled to display great boldness of spirit and resolution in the discharge of their master's work. About this time she went to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper at Durleton, and returning home she fell into a languishing condition of body, but on her removal to Balcars she gradually recovered. When previously residing at Balcars she had attended the curate of the parish, whose ministry was a heavy burden in the place, but now more true to her convictions she altogether absented herself, and yet on this account, offensive as her conduct might be to the curate, neither her friends nor strangers frowned upon her. Returning to Inverary, she regularly heard Mr. Patrick Campbell preach once every Sabbath, and also derived much spiritual profit from the fellowship and example of some experienced Christians in the parish. She records that about this time Mr. Alexander Wedderburn, that eminent shining light, paid a visit to Inverary and remained several weeks, during which time his ministry was accompanied with much evidence of the power and presence of God. Shortly after, she and several of her friends went to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper at Killallan, footnote, Killallan and Housetown, former United Parish, now generally called Housetown, end footnote, of which Mr. James Hutchison was indulged minister. And on the close of this occasion, she spent some weeks with the Marchioness of Argyle at her residence at Roseneath, where for several Sabbaths she had the pleasure of listening to the pastoral instructions of Mr. Neil Gillies, indulged minister in that place. Leaving the Marchioness of Argyle, she returned to Inverary and was soon after united in marriage to Sir Duncan Campbell, 4th Baronet of Auchenbreck, who was descended from the same stock as the Earl of Argyle, to whom he was only second in the county of Argyle. He succeeded his uncle, Sir Dugald, who died without issue, soon after the restoration of Charles II. Footnote, Douglas's Baronage of Scotland, page 62. End footnote. After her marriage, she went to dwell at the residence of Sir Duncan at Loch Gare, a mansion of great size, but which was cast to the ground when the property went to other hands. Footnote, New Statistical Account of Scotland, Kilmichael Glassery, Argyllshire, page 684. The Campbell of Auchenbreck family held their barren bailey courts at Kilmichael, then a populous village, and a place of considerable importance not only to the parish but also in the county. End footnote. Here she found her lot abundantly creditable and also very comfortable, meeting with much fond affection and kindness both from Sir Duncan and from his relations, which, says she, with all dutiful affection, will ever be remembered with the greatest gratitude. The only want she appears to have felt in this remote locality was her deprivation of the preaching of the gospel, these bounds being then as a heath in the wilderness as to the means of grace, for the minister of the parish, 
like too many of the intruded curates, was a corrupt, insignificant teacher. On some occasions, however, though rarely by reason of the persecution, she received visits from non-conforming ministers by whose society and instruction she was greatly refreshed. Previous to her confinement, she went to Edinburgh, where on the 30th of January, her son James, a child whom she devoted to God from the womb, and who afterwards succeeded his father, was born. Some weeks after, she and Sir Duncan, with their child, returned to Loch Gare, and notwithstanding the severity with which the persecution then raged, they enjoyed much tranquility during the most of that year. At this time, the Earl of Argyll, paying them a visit, invited them to come and stay with him for a few months at the castle of Inverary. They readily accepted his invitation and took along with them their infant boy who was there nursed with his grandmother with the greatest affection and tenderness. In July she and Sir Duncan with their child went to Kintyre with the most of the Earl Argyles and her mother's families forming a numerous company. Their society was exceedingly agreeable and they had an opportunity of attending at the dispensation of the Lord's Supper in that place on two Sabbaths in succession. Footnote. Mr. David Simpson was indulged minister at Kintyre in 1672. He was ejected from his ministry at Southend after the Restoration for Nonconformity. Wadros History, Volume 1, page 328, and Volume 2, page, 3, page 204. End footnote. All of them, but especially Lady Campbell and her mother, were much interested in the services of these solemn occasions. Which, says Lady Campbell, writing after the Revolution, were made a double meal to many. And indeed, as this meal was doubled to many, so many had a long journey to go in strength of it. As was sweetly forewarned, and with great utterance and liveliness was told us. I never saw such a sight of young communicants, or more seriousness, the seeds whereof, it is hoped, do remain in that place that is blessed again with powerful signalizing ministry. She adds, These two eminent lights soon after were put out by the removal of Mr. Cameron and Mr. Keith as a sad presage to the place and to our nation, as indeed appeared immediately after by the growing desolation and trouble that daily increased to the putting of further restraint on ministers and people, many of whom were imprisoned, harassed, chased to the hazard of their lives, the violating of the consciences of others, and the fearful bloodshed of many, retrenching our liberties so that it was made a crime to meet or convene to the worship of the living God, except in such a manner as our nation was solemnly sworn against, laying bonds on ministers not to preach, or people to hear under such and such penalties, fines, hazards as were endless to rehearse, things running to such a height to the introducing of popery itself, if the Lord had not prevented, that there were almost no thinking persons but were under the dread and fear of this approaching judgment. Thus for several years was this growing state of persecution groaned under by many families and persons, which, when called to mind, cannot but excite to wonder, bearing witness to this cruel bondage, much like to the case of those in Psalm 66:12, Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place, for which, O, oh, to be helped to go to thy house with burnt offerings, that each of us to pay those vows which our lips have uttered and our mouths have spoken when we were in this trouble. 
Lady Campbell's attachment to the cause of nonconformity, as might be expected, created her opposition, remote as was the part of the country where she resided, for in the most remote localities there were always some individuals, the curates if no others, who made it their business to discover such as were hostile to prelacy and to entail on them the penalties of persecution. In the year 1684 an attempt was made, owing to the malignity or cupidity of base informers, to banish the worship of God from her house, as appears from her gratefully speaking of the Lord's mercifully hiding her as in a pavilion, even from the strife of tongues and his never-to-be-forgotten mercy under the adversary's bold attack to turn the worship of God out of her family. From this general statement, the particular circumstances of the case can only be guessed at, as it was then perfectly legal for the master of a family to assemble his own domestics for reading the scriptures and for prayer. Sir Duncan, had the government been regulated by their own laws, which, however, was not always the case, could not have been found fault with and punished for performing those duties himself. It may, therefore, be supposed that he retained in his family a Presbyterian chaplain whose duty it was to lead the devotions at the domestic altar, and that the government being informed of this, Sir Duncan was threatened with prosecution or actually prosecuted on that ground. The result she does not declare, but as an evidence of their firmness of purpose, it may be mentioned that when the case was pending and occasioning them no small anxiety, they cordially welcomed into their house at Loch Gare an ejected minister who unexpectedly paid them a visit, though such hospitality was then in no small degree perilous. And they, moreover, during his stay with them, though at the risk of heavy penalties, gladly converted their house into a little sanctuary where their domestics and neighbors assembled to hear the words of eternal life at his mouth. But, says she, while thus under unaccountable thoughtfulness about the event, and great trouble, the Lord directed one of his faithful and chosen servants unexpectedly to our family, the Reverend Mr. Robert Muir, eminent in his day, and though the time was difficulting, yet Sir Duncan was moved to favor and welcome him and would not part with him for some weeks, which was made a seasonable refreshing visit to some. These lectures and family exercise and sermons were made often as light from the dead, not only instructing to the great conviction of severals, but were made strengthening and comforting to others. And though several did meet together during his being with us, yet never did the least trouble follow, save to part again which was not easy to many. Mr. Muir, as we shall see in the sequel, had afterward an opportunity of repaying the kindness he had at this time received from Lady Campbell and Sir Duncan when his hosts were brought into circumstances of distress. In the winter following, that is, about the close of the year 1684 or the beginning of the year 1685, Sir Duncan being unjustly and maliciously accused of uttering expressions reflecting on the government, for which he was in danger of prosecution, she proceeded along with him to Edinburgh through a great fall of snow, with the de design, it would appear, of leaving the country. But on reaching the capital they were happily relieved from this threatened trouble, and staying there for some weeks they had opportunity, though but seldom, of hearing the gospel preached by some of the non-conforming ministers. At this time Charles II died, 
an event which, severe as the persecution had been under his reign, excited from the well-known cruelty and bigotry of his brother James who succeeded him, the most alarming apprehensions in regard to the future. In which time, says she, King Charles' death fell out, which ushered in great agitation in the minds of many who did foresee and fear what indeed did follow, matters being screwed to such a height as Protestants could not but be greatly alarmed, which unquestionably gave rise to the late Earl of Argyle's project from Holland, the Lord seeing it meet to move the heart of severals to bestir themselves in behalf of their religion and liberty when so largely run down, as did evidently appear by the scaffolding, dragooning, torturing, and barbarous practices among us, so that either our ruin or relief seemed to be at hand. The summer after this, she and Sir Duncan were residing at Carnesary Castle. Footnote. Carnesary Castle was the residence of Mr. John Carswell, when after the Reformation from Popery he became superintendent of Argyle and after his death, which took place in the year 1575, it became the property and occasional residence of the Campbells of Auchenbreck. New Statistical Account of Scotland. Kilmartin, Argyllshire, page 555 and 556. footnote. Which stood on an eminence at the head of the valley of Kilmartin, anciently called Strathmore, and the ruins of which are still to be seen. While residing here, she enjoyed for some weeks the society of her desirable sister, Lady Sophia. At the same time, she was attacked by a high fever, and in her sickness she was visited by her mother, who on her recovery prevailed with her to accompany her and Lady Sophia to Stirling, and live there with her and her sister till her health should be more fully recruited. During the time of her stay with her mother at Stirling, tidings came to the government that the Earl of Argyle had touched at Orkney, upon which, as has already been recorded, her dear mother was, by an order of the Privy Council, immediately apprehended and carried prisoner to Stirling Castle, and thence on a Sabbath morning to the Castle of Edinburgh. Her dear sister, Lady Sophia, was also imprisoned, and many of the most substantial of the Campbell name were seized and made close prisoners in the Canongate tollbooth. Some days after, Sir Duncan, on receiving intelligence of the Earl's coming to Campbelltown, and the need he had of aid, willing to hazard his all to promote the design of his undertaking, went through manifold difficulties and even at the peril of his life to join him with a considerable number of his men. Footnote. Wadro says 800. History, Volume 4, page 290. Hall says 200. Sir Duncan Campbell of Auchenbreck says he, with two hundred men, went to him under the pretense he was bound by his charter to assist him, which cannot oblige him against the king nor defend him for treason. Decisions, Volume 1, page 363. Who, however, continued not long to get together, for they were scattered, says Lady Campbell, to the unaccountable grief and sadness of many who were breathing for a deliverance. With much bitterness of spirit she took leave of Sir Duncan at Stirling when he was about to join Argyle, for she dreaded the result. Nor was she altogether satisfied as to the expediency of the undertaking, though the laudableness of the object prevented her from making any opposition. A time, says she, not to be forgotten, was this, and what this parting was when he left me at Stirling. 
and though it become though it became me not to be so selfish as to stand in the way of a more public concern when so much seemed to be at the stake, yet I was far from encouraging him in it because I had not that clearness in it that could have been wished. The same danger he was exposed to at this time was as the bereaving me of my life. So much was it bound up in him, but the Lord was graciously pleased to support so that some of those days were more wonderful and any time spent alone was more than ordinarily countenanced, and these loneliest times were made sweeter than could have been expected, although under the prospect of heavy times to follow. Unquote. She continues, quote, The following day we had the unaccountable, sad, and dismal notice of the ruin of that undertaking, wherein the expectations of many were sadly defeated. But the Lord's time was not come for our deliverance and that which did greatly aggravate the terribleness of that stroke was the dreadful aspect these circumstances appeared to have, not possible to relate, sufferings of various kinds being from all earths expected, and an increase of our thraldom greatly dreaded. End quote. On the subsequent day at St. Ninian's, she passed in deep disguise through several guards in order to obtain more certain intelligence respecting her nearest friends and learning that they were in danger, she was greatly distressed. She watched during the greater part of that night and returned at four o'clock in the morning to Stirling, where, on being informed that Sir Duncan was on the road, her fears regarding his safety were heightened. Taking leave that day of her dear Jamie, whom the Lord provided friends to care for, though she left him very destitute, having no relative to whom she could entrust him, her mother and sister being at this time prisoners, she, with much confusion and agitation of mind, set out for Edinburgh, walking and riding alternately. When some miles on her journey, being then on foot, she unexpectedly met near Falkirk the Earl of Argyle, who was brought that length prisoner on his way to Edinburgh, which, says she, quote, was a mournful sight to one who bore him so great affection, end quote. He does not, however, appear to have observed her, she was in deep disguise and did not venture to come near him, but held up in the rear at some distance most part of the way till the horse on which she was riding failed. Judging it more than probable that Sir Duncan was taken, and being informed by several persons on the road that such was the case, she was greatly troubled. But the report of his apprehension was unfounded, for, though searched for in several places, he was wonderfully preserved from falling into the hands of his enemies a mercy which on many accounts she desired to remember with thankfulness and praise. Before reaching Edinburgh, she was under the necessity of staying all night on the road and had some difficulty in getting lodgings. Owing to the fatigue of traveling and to great heaviness and pressure of mind arising from her own personal concerns, from the calamities of various kinds which had befallen or were about to befall many who were concerned in Argyle's attempt, and from fears respecting her husband, of whose safety she was ignorant, sleep departed from her eyes. But as the Lord had commanded his loving kindness in the daytime, so in the night of trouble his song was with her, and her prayer unto the God of her life, who made this among the sweetest nights that ever she had or durst have expected, so that sleep was neither missed nor sought after. Next morning, coming early to Edinburgh, at the opening of the gate, she received the afflicting news of the barbarous treatment the dear Earl of Argyll had met with, 
in his being brought to the castle, and also heard very painful rumors regarding several of her nearest relations, which again plunged her in distress. When revolving in her mind where to go, she was directed to the lodgings of a dear sympathizing friend, Mr. Robert Muir, with whom she found much favor and kind reception, and whose company on this afflicting Sabbath was no small blessing to her. And what was I, she adds, that the Lord should thus regard me, that in most of my greatest troubles he hath been pleased to favor me with his people's society and company, but he is gracious and his compassions fail not. Ever since Mr. Muir had stayed some weeks with her in Sir Duncan at their house at Lochgair, his instructions, singular sympathy, and affectionate help had been of great advantage to them both. And therefore, says she, quote, I hope and enjoin that it may not be forgot by such of mine as may outlive this acknowledgment. But above all, she adds, for her pious spirit led her to see the hand of God in everything, quote, is to be acknowledged is to be acknowledged the wonderful compassion of the High and Lofty One in thus compassionating the exigencies of the indigent. And therefore I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. Psalm 31, 7. End quote. On the following day she had certain information of Sir Duncan's safety and marvelous preservation which greatly relieved her burdened mind concerning him and she was then in better case to make inquiry after her dear afflicted mother who was harshly treated and who was greatly afflicted in prospect of the cruel death of her husband, the Earl of Argyll. Lady Campbell and the Earl of Argyll entertained a high esteem and warm affection for each other. By the Christian excellence of her character she had gained upon his heart, and he always treated her with kindness as if she had been his own child. She, on the other hand, cherished toward him the tenderness of a daughter. This, as well as sympathy with her mother, made his death a sore stroke to her. On the morning of the day on which he was executed, she obtained an interview with him, though not till he was brought to the council house. When admitted to him, she was greatly comforted in witnessing his composed, edifying carriage in circumstances so trying to human fortitude. After endearing expressions, he said to her, we must not part like those not to meet again. And she testifies that he went thence to the place of execution with the greatest assurance. As a last memorial of his affectionate remembrance of her, he wrote to her a letter on the last day of his life, and it was probably written in the council house immediately after this interview passed between them, at the same time that he wrote a letter to her sister, Lady Sophia, and another to her mother. It is as follows. Quote, June 30th, 1685. Dear Lady Henrietta, I pray God sanctify and bless this lot to you. Our concerns are strangely mixed. The Lord look on them. I know all shall turn to, to good to them that fear God and hope in his mercy. So I know you do, and that you may still do it more and more is my wish for you. The Lord comfort you. I am your loving father and servant, Argyle. End quote. Footnote, Wardrobe's History, Volume 4, page 304. Some person had taken a copy of this letter at the time, and by this means it was preserved. Mr. John Anderson, minister of Kirkmaiden, in a letter to Wardrobe dated November 6, 1723, speaking of Wardrobe's History, says, 
Quote, I was much surprised when I read the Earl of Argyle's letter to my lady Henrietta Campbell, seeing she had often told me she had lost it long ago, but it seems some person had got a copy of it from whom you have had it. End quote. Letters to Wadrill, Manuscripts in Advocates Library, Volume 21, Number 133. End footnote. To the sorrow of Lady Campbell, occasioned by the execution of Argyle, and the condition of her mother, was added the sorrow occasioned by the cruel manner in which many of the Campbell clan were treated, the close imprisonment of her sister, and the rapine and violence committed upon Sir Duncan's property, and that, his friend, and that of his friends and tenants. At this melancholy time, says she, quote, account came of many of our folks that were taken and brought in like slaves, so as many prisons were filled. Others spoiled of all that they had, who had been in jail all this time, and no way in arms. Their houses rifled and the young ones put to flight. Many were harassed, and twenty-three gentlemen and fewers were executed in one day by that bloody person. Footnote, the Marquis of Athol. The whole territory of the Campbells was entrusted to him when the Earl of Argyle fell a sacrifice and among other acts of cruelty and lawless violence which he committed, he caused to be executed four or five gentlemen of the name of Campbell, after they had received quarter and protection upon their surrendering, and eighteen more at Inverary without even the formality of a trial. A small but chaste monument of chlorite erected on the spot close to the church commemorates their tragical death, and with great moderation of language the cause in which they fell. Wadrill's History, Volume 4, page 310, and New Statistical Account of Scotland, Inverary, Argyllshire. End footnote. Who gave orders for it? My dear sister was close prisoner, so as none of us had access to her. Our whole bounds and interest laid waste. Many put to flight, our house burned, and many put to great hardships, as were unaccountable to relate. Sir Duncan's uncle, Alexander Campbell, of Strandour, slain at our gate, and Dougal McTavish, of Druiderry, executed at Bodraft. End quote. Footnote. This account is confirmed by a petition of Sir Duncan Campbell for himself and his distressed friends, tenants, and vassals in Knapdale, Glassery, and Kellislate, presented to the Estates of Parliament after the Revolution. End footnote. Yet, she adds, quote, Oh, the graciousness of the Lord who gave a back for the burden, as is wonderful at in looking back on it, as also the bounty and goodness of the Lord in the safety of so many in the same circumstances who were designed to be a sacrifice but were miraculously preserved. End quote. While, as is stated in the above extract, the castle of Carnesary was burned by the enemy and burned, too, in violation of a solemn treaty, her other and chief place of residence, Lochgare House, was, with the like perfidy, plundered of all its furniture. Sir Duncan's friends defended that house against the Marquis of Athol's men for some time, but at length they entered into a treaty with them and surrendered it upon condition that all the furniture, papers, etc. should be preserved and that they should be allowed to convey, convey them safe to Lady Campbell. But this treaty proved a frail security. Too perfidious to be bound by their own engagements, Athol's men garrisoned the house and plundered it. The commander of the party, after having taken away and destroyed most of what was in the house, 
coveting the charter chest, which was of a very curious construction, broke it open and turned out the papers on the floor of the chamber where it stood, sending away the chest for his own use. After this reckless spoliation, a party of soldiers lay in the house about eight or ten weeks. It is a singular fact that after the revolution, when Lady Campbell and Sir Duncan returned from Holland, they found these papers lying on that chamber floor exactly in the same state as when turned out of the charter chest. Though they had then lain exposed nearly four years, the house being in ruins and open to everybody. On coming home, as the mansion at Loch was uninhabitable, they dwelt for some time in another house in which they had not been long when Lady Campbell wished to, to go and see their house at Loch and desired Sir Duncan to send some person to look for his papers. He answered that he was certain they were all destroyed, but going, up, but going up herself to see the condition of the house, she found them all lying in a heap on the floor, and caused them to be put up in several trunks and carried to Edinburgh, where on examination it was found that not one paper of value was missing. Footnote, Waddell's Analecta, Volume 1, pages 280-282, to and his History, Volume 4, page 310. End footnote. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.